All right, so uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 1 and then verse 13 is where I'm going to back up to. You guys made me teach on open and closed doors last week, and I never got past that. It was, you guys were pulling on that, and I, so, yeah, so I got lost in that. But anyway, I hope that helped you, and um, help you to understand sometimes how God opens things for us. Um, again, you don't have to wait for God to tell you where to go. You can go, and he can guide you. Um, now, I, I'm looking at the right kind of crowd here, but driving a car without power steering, right? <laughs> trying, to, trying to turn that wheel when the car is not moving was pretty difficult. That's why they had those great big steering wheels, so you could, <laughs> you know, pull them around. But anyway, so uh, kind of same principle with, uh, with God. You know, we fill with the Spirit, it's like getting power steering. <laughs> but uh, God guides us. But you got to be moving still. You know, just to sit and wait for guidance won't work. Paul prayed for doors to open. He took the open doors that were there. And as he, as he walked, God said, no, not there. Um, yeah, but I want to go there. No, not there. And then later, God said, yeah, go there. So it's just a matter of, of all those things, and it works in every one of our lives, that God has a place and a purpose for us, why you choose to go to this store, why you choose to be in that place. Sometimes it's just God's open door. And um, you don't always know exactly what's going to take place from you being there. So anyway, that's... Uh, that's where we were at last week. So verse 13, uh, Romans 1, 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented by God, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he wanted to have fruit there, but it wasn't going to happen at that place. So, or at that time. Um, later, did Paul ever get to Spain? People want to know that was his heart's desire. Uh, I believe so. Uh, he disappeared for about three-year period. Uh, after he got out of his first prison arrest, he went to Ephesus, left Timothy and some others, then went to Macedonia, visited some people, went to Crete, left Titus in Crete, uh, gave him a message, come see me in Dalmanutha, which is like the, the, the Greek um, golden coast. It's where everybody goes for vacation now. And, uh, and then he disappeared. And the next thing you hear from him is about almost three years later. So where did he go? No one knows. Spain would have been a perfect place to go and hide from Nero because he was pursuing Christians at that time because it was after the fire in Rome. And just a few months before the fire in Rome, he had released Peter from prison, or Paul from prison. So the thought that maybe Paul had some part to do with that uh, is quite possible, because then in 2 Timothy, when Paul does get arrested, uh, his statement is, I am treated as the vilest of criminals. Well, as a Roman citizen, that wouldn't have happened unless he was guilty of uh, insurrection, uh, some kind of violation of, of Roman um, imperial law, not just your daily break a law type person. So something has happened, and Paul is uh, there in prison, and that was his last opportunity. So he wrote to Timothy, wrote Second um, Timothy to him, and that's the last words that we have from Paul. But did he get there? I believe so. I believe that something that God had put in his heart and that he was going to be there. Now, let's go to verse 14 because that's where we're going to take up from here. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, 
both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. How many Greeks do we have in the room here? <coughs> well, got a couple Greeks. The rest of us are what? Barbarians. Barbarians. Yep, there we are. <laughs> and so uh, we fit in that. Actually, the word barbarian comes from the sound of the word. Uh, and so it was like mumbling. And so they said, that's what they called them, mumblers. And uh, barbarian is just a Roman word for that. Uh, it doesn't mean that you pick up your meat with your hands and eat it that way. That would be Jeff with ribs. But... Um, Anyway, Paul says, I'm under obligation to Greeks, barbarians, to wise, the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul says, I have this obligation. So this is what I want to spend a little bit of time on as we start tonight. Um, Paul was, was extremely dedicated to his call. He was humbled by the fact that God called him. And he was very... Um, very respectful of the fact that God had given him a ministry. Although sometimes he sounds arrogant, he's not. He's submitting to what God gave him to be. Um, you know, it's like Moses had to write the phrase, Moses was the humblest of all men. Um, okay, if you write that about yourself, there's a little bit of problem with that. Normally you could think... Um, but Paul, in the same way, Ephesians chapter 3 specifically, where Paul talks about God had given me this dispensation. And, you know, in that passage, there's more words of me from Paul than just about any place else. But he's just saying, this is what God called me to do. And he gave me this, this message of the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the church, that Jew and Gentile would be brought together in one body. And that was the message God has given me to proclaim, and not even the angels understood that. Okay, now, again, you say, is that arrogance or is it humility? It's humility, because all I'm telling you is what God told me. And so Paul is very uh, aware. He had a high regard for the work of the ministry that God had called him to be an apostle. Um, but he didn't treat it like an assignment. It wasn't, well, I got this assignment, you know, I got to be here, I got to be there. It wasn't an assignment to him. It wasn't a number of little boxes that he had to check off. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, God wants me to do this, I got this one done here, these done. You know, no, it wasn't, he didn't say it like it was an assignment. It wasn't like a list of things that God had given or appointments that God had made. He did it, as we've already studied earlier, as a service of worshipful devotion to God whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And Paul said earlier that would, that's, that's how I'm doing this. That's all the way back to verse 9. And so he says, this is, this is not me. This is my worship back to God. I, he's given me something to do, and I'm going to do it as worship unto him. And that's how each of us should look at whatever it is that God has Put upon our life that we want to do it not as an assignment it's not a have to be this or a have to be that i'm doing this because god has given me this opportunity he's given me some gifts and i need to use them and so this is the attitude in which paul saw this so it doesn't direct his attention i want you to notice the wording of the verse Back to verse 14, I am under obligation to Greeks, barbarians, to wise, and to foolish. Notice he does not say in there at all, I'm under obligation to God. He didn't see it as an obligation to God. I'm not doing this because God said I need to, or God has given me this direction. God had. God had laid gifts and anointings and abilities into Paul's life, but he says, I'm doing this as an obligation to the people God has called me to minister to. I owe them what God has given me. And that's the way Paul looked at his work. And each one of us, again, being parents, 
you, you don't do it as an obligation to God. You do it as a responsibility to the gift that God has given into your life. You have these children. And God has said, do this. Here's the children now, serve. We can look at sometimes the position or the place that God has given us uh, in life. And we can say, well, I'm doing this, you know, out of service to God. We can witness out of obligation to God. Or we can do it because of the people. I owe them what God has put in my life. And so this is how Paul looked at this. It was the recipients of his message that he saw himself under obligation to. Not to the God that gave him the, the, the responsibility or the gift, but to the people that were before him. Now, the word obligation comes from a Greek word, which means debt. And, uh, but it's, it's not just necessarily a debt. It can also be used in the reference of something that's given to you to pass along to others. So it's a kindness shown to you. Paul talks about the grace God has given him. Right? So this is a kindness that you've received that you are responsible to pass along. And that's the way that we should look at what God has given to me. I'm not under debt to God. Listen, listen to this. You're not under debt to God because then it would not be grace. See, grace is what? Free gift. Not based on what you're worth. Not even based on what you're going to do with it. So if it's, I am under obligation to God, then there's no grace involved. This is my repayment to God. No. Paul saw his obligation that arose from a favor, a grace that God had shown him. Now, I've got a couple passages. They're long passages, but I wanted to read these because they show Paul's heart in this issue. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, the bottom of your page, uh, starting in verse 13. Paul says, 1 Timothy 1, 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. A blasphemer is not just a liar. There's a difference between the Greek word for lying and blaspheme. To blaspheme is always used to dignitaries, either government or gods, deities. And so in the Bible, it's always blaspheme is against God. Um, and it means to lie against what you know is true. So it's not just a lie. It's a lie against what you know is true. To know that he's God, but say he's not. All right, that's blasphemy. And so that was held as one of the highest of the uh, violations in Israel. They accused Jesus, of course, of that. A persecutor is just simply the Greek word for a hunter. It's the idea of hunting somebody down. After someone to persecute is to be after them, to hunt them, to follow along, to do damage to them. And then the word insolent opponent is a hard Greek word to translate, and it's translated in numerous different ways. Um, basically, it means to take joy out of somebody else's suffering. To be satisfied because somebody else is suffering at your hands. So, we would call them today a terrorist. Which is pretty much exactly what Paul was. If he'd had access to bombs, I, don't, I, I have little doubt that he may have used a bomb in a church to destroy the Christians. He was willing to hunt them down, not just to hunt them down, but to drag them back, separate families, take children and wives and husbands away from one another, drag them back to Jerusalem where they could be tried and stoned. That's pretty evil. But look at the next verse. That's what it was. 
but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Okay, don't, don't see that as Paul excusing himself. How many have heard, ever heard of the phrase, ignorance is no excuse? Yeah. You can try to use ignorance as it's not. Paul should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. He should have known that. No one knew the law better than Paul. He should have been able to see that this man, Jesus, was the Messiah. He wouldn't refuse to. And so, then also in unbelief. I refuse to accept, and I lived in my unbelief. I will not, I do not accept that this Jesus is the Messiah. Paul was standing there during Stephen's sermon. And so when you read Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 6 and then all the way through Acts chapter 7, it is a masterpiece of presenting Jesus as the Messiah and why he was the Messiah and why he had to suffer at the hands of the people and how God set this all up. And Stephen goes back with Israel's history and brings in Abraham and David and all these. And he brings all of this to the point. And the Bible says no one was able to withstand his words. Who was in that group that was listening? Paul. And we think there's, there's no greater mind than Paul. And he could not refute Stephen's words. But he refused to believe him. And gave consent to his death. He didn't pick up a stone. He just said, you do it. I, I don't want blood on my hands. <laughs> yeah, really. That's, that's what I was. Ignorant and unbelieving. And the grace of Lord overflowed. What did? The grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Faith toward God and love toward those whom God has called. And the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Suddenly all of that evil, that terrorist attitude, that blaspheming, persecuting heart that was in Paul was gone. Is that amazing? Well, look back at your own testimony. There's some things just disappeared. Now we all know Pastor Bob saved at the age of three. Five. Five, sorry. <laughs> saved at the age of five. Wow. Think of the horrible things that he had done. Played with his sister's toys, you know, spilled his milk, said no to his mother. But you know what? God's grace overflows. And his grace overflows into our life. And he says, all of this came to me as a flood. Verse 15, and the saying is trustworthy, deserving of acceptance Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am at the foremost. Look at verse 14 or 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, for this reason. Let me tell you, you received God's mercy for a reason. Not just so you could go to heaven, yes. But you see, if it if only thing that God wanted was for you to be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven when you die, then when you got saved, you'd have been gone. But he left you here for a reason. Because you know people and you intersect with people and you have relationship with people that God wants you to speak into their life. You are under obligation to them. I know everybody's going to walk out of here with, you know, with, you know, a sin mentality, but I don't want you to do that. We just have an obligation. God saved me for this reason. 
that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Yeah, I know. Paul is a tremendous example of God's conversion and his power to change a person's life. But every one of us have that story. It might not be as dramatic. And we may not be called to all the people that Paul was called to, but each one of us fits within this presence that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe. I need to use my testimony to share with people. Donna brought me a testimony today. You know, we all have testimonies. So God said, Jesus told his disciples, you shall receive power, the Holy Spirit coming upon you. How many have received the Holy Spirit? Let me see your hands. All right. So that you can be what? Witnesses. Give testimony. Same Greek word. The word testimony means to give witness. Or to be a martyr. Okay, we don't, okay, don't, don't like that. Take, that. take that martyr word out. But that's what the Greek word is. Martyrion. To witness. To testify. To respond to a challenge. Someone says... So what is, it, what is this Jesus thing that you believe? You've just been challenged. Are you going to say it? Or are you going to hold it back? You're under obligation. obligation. Not to God, but to them. Mr. Jeff, can you just pass on to something else? Can we? Titus chapter 3. Okay, let's look at another passage. Titus chapter 3, look at verse 3. If you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, you need to. So just a word from you, you know, and if you've got a device, find a way to highlight it. This is one of, the, this to me has become a, a key verse for my life. For we ourselves were once, what? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's what we were. We were at one time. Now, there's degrees of that in our lives. Some people are incredibly evil. Other people are gently evil. But they still are. Hating one another. Hating others. And you know, if you hate other people, what's going to happen? They're going to what? They're going to hate you back. That's the world we live in. Verse 4, but when? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... To me, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. I didn't have any. Look at that list up there. There's no works of righteousness listed. Not because of works of righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Boy, there it is. That is such a powerful description what God does for the sinner. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Man, is that awesome? That, that's a great verse. Uh, but let's read on, top of the next page. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Woohoo! I get eternal life. I've been justified. His grace is working in me. I'm an heir. I get to go to heaven when I die. Everything's looking good. Verse 8. This is this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. What I just said, insist. Why? Why is it necessary for me to insist 
that you keep this thing in your mind, that you keep this principle of what God has done for you because of all of your wrong and His great mercy and His love. Why is it important? So that those who have believed in God, that's you, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Remember what God has done so that you can devote yourself to good works. These things, or this, is excellent and profitable for people. Who people? Other people. It's profitable for me to do good works because it's profitable for them. I need to devote myself to these things. God saved me. I've got an obligation. Not to God, but to others. So, next point. And this will we'll cover this real quick so it doesn't hurt. But to, to fail to fulfill my obligation, this debt, to pass along the kindness that was shown to me, to pass it on to others, to fail to do so, is to transgress. Now, the word transgress and sin are synonyms, <laughs> synonyms for sin. But um, sin is a purposeful missing the mark, a violation of what you know to is, is right and doing something else. Pardon me. A trespass is a, a stumble. The Greek word means to stumble on the path. Trespass. Um, I ran track when I was in school. Uh, some of the track meets, we had to stay in certain lines for a certain period of time. Sometimes all the way around the track, you had to stay in your line. And the lines in those days were lime. And they had the little thing, and they went out there and put the lime down on the cinder tracks. And um, if you stepped out of line, it showed and so that was a violation. You're disqualified. It was just a step. And it didn't mean to. So a trespass can be a didn't mean to. But to fail to see the obligation to pass along the kindness God has shown to me is a trespass. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 16. Like I said, put on your steel-toed boots. Get out your anointing salve. Paul says, for if I preach the gospel, the word preach, don't, don't see it as being a, in a pulpit. The Greek word simply means to speak out. To speak out. If I preach or if I witness the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Why? Because all I'm doing is passing on what God gave me. For necessity is laid upon me Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Well, that's not good New Testament stuff. Bless God, there's no woe to me. Well, Paul, the author of grace, <laughs> uh, says there is. We have an obligation. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. You don't get to go to heaven because you didn't witness to everybody that you saw. No. What it is, is I'm violating this very principle of why God put this gift in my life. Yes, he saved me so I could be with him forever. He saved me because he loved me. And all of those things are wonderful and great. And that's one side of it. But he also saved me so I could do something here. Or he would have just taken me to heaven when I got saved. He left us here with a commission. Look at Acts chapter 26. Paul sharing in his testimony, Acts 26, But rise, the Lord said to, to Paul, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness. Notice that the word apostle is not in that group. We're all servants and witnesses. To the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. Uh, I love that promise. 
you didn't get it all yet. God's got more things he wants to share to you, more things he wants to give you, more opportunities he wants to bring into your life. And the things he has given you, that's wonderful. But he's also going to appear to you and give you some more. The things which I will appear to you. Listen to Paul's words, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. You know, if God has given you something, shown you something, you have an obligation to fulfill that vision, which is to pass on what God has given you to others. Now, who are the people that he's called to? Well, look at this, look at this group of people. Greeks and barbarians. Thank God he said barbarians, or most of us wouldn't be included. That's, that's the cultured and the uncultured. To the, to the Roman people of that day, to say someone was a Greek, which I know there were Romans, Greek empire was gone, but that was still considered the height of culture was the Greeks. And so this is all the cultured people, you know, the ones who, you know, uh, eat cheese and sip wine and, 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 and drink with their pinky fingers, you know, and, uh, you know, and they go to little parties and uh you know the yeah all the cultured ones that uh, have their parties down at the you know the philbrook and in the country clubs and the cultured and then there's the uncultured yep i'm in that group the uncultured uh, okay the cultured and the uncultured to the wise and the foolish this is the educated and the uneducated I'm not called to people of my education level. I'm called to minister to people that are not as educated as me and people that are more educated than me. So to the wise and to the foolish, I don't think foolish means idiots. He's not talking about that, which, by the way, the Greek word idiotes just means common. All right, so... You call somebody idiotes, you're just saying they're common. But um, the educated and the uneducated. There's, there's nobody in this, in this group that doesn't match. There's no social strata. There's no educational strata. No casting of people. It's like, well, that's not my group. You know, I'm, I'm called this group up here. Church that Jen and I were at for a period of time. Uh, the, the leaders of the church said, we are, we're called to the up-and-outers, not to the down-and-outers. And they directed their witness to people who were wealthy. And it was like, we're the church for the wealthy people. And um, the pastor, and I was associate pastor at that time, uh, did our best to tear that image down. And most of those people left. But, um, and with them went money, of course. But you know what? Uh, we, we're not called to the wealthy. We're called to people. We're called to people. And so Paul says, I have this debt. I owe them. Not God. I owe them. Because what God gave me is by grace. And what I have, I need to pass on. Not only that, he says, but to you in Rome. Paul says, he, I want to come to you, to thy might come to you in Rome. But then he also wants to go where? To Spain. Acts chapter 15. He says, so, or Romans chapter 15. He says, I, I, I plan to go to Rome. So, there's no ethnic groupings here. The Romans were the culture, the, the, the educated, the they're, they're civilized, they got their cities, they got their educational structure. You go out to Spain and it is wild and crazy. <coughs> now, not today, but in Paul's day. Spain was like the boundaries of the empire. It's, it was wild out there. Britannia was the same way in Paul's day. Parts of Gaul were that way. What we consider Eastern Europe was that way. Northern part of the Middle East, up around the, the uh, Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. Wild and crazy. Even the Roman armies did not like going into those regions. But you know who went there? 
the apostles. And most of them died there. Yeah. To everyone. And he just simply has that. So he uses the Greek word everyone, pos, which means everybody grouped as one unit. No divisions. If he used another Greek word, uh, panta, it would have to do with individual groups. But he uses pos, just means everybody. Everybody is in one class. To everyone. And then he comes back to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jew first here because this is, this is where the gospel came out of. This is Jesus came to what? The house of Israel. And the gospel came out of the house of Israel. And so it came out from the Jews first, then also to the Greeks. And that's the way that the church grew. It was not supposed to stay Jewish. It was designed to expand to everyone. The Old Testament law, by the way, and I don't have time to develop all of this, but in the Old Testament, under Jewish law, they were not called to make the world Jewish. Because you can't. Jewish has to do with racial, ethnic backgrounds. They weren't called to make everybody submit to the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law. That was never, they weren't to be evangelists of Judaism. They were to live as an example. Would they accept other people that wanted to come in? Yes. People could come in from others and they could go through the rituals of becoming um, under the law, but they wouldn't be Jewish only in the sense of their religion. So the Old Testament, they weren't called to make the world Jewish. They were called to live an example. We are called to live an example, but also what? Make the world Christian. That is, that's our commission. To the Jew and to the Greeks. That all of the nations would hear. And so the law was written for the Jews. The gospel is written for all mankind. And so we have a responsibility to spread this gospel to everyone. And at the end of verse 13, he says, in order that I might reap some harvest, that is, have some fruit. I, I, I want to come there, that I might reap some harvest. And again, this is not Paul saying, hey, I, I, I need some money, and I need to come there, and I need to take some of your money. Um, I need to reap a harvest from your bank account. No, that's not what he's talking about because he says, as I have done among the Gentiles elsewhere, all right, that I might have some fruit among you as I have in other places. Jesus said, John chapter 15, verse 16, I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. So God has given us this this commission Jesus gave us this commission and so he's looking for us to bring forth fruit and fruit having to do with bringing other people in the potential that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain the the Greek word for the potential there is the idea that both the disciple and the hearer I have to speak the gospel but they have to believe it I can do my part, but it's not going to produce fruit unless they also do their part, which is believe. I can't make them believe, but they can't make me witness either. And so it takes both parts to make this, this happen. Now let's move on to verse 16, bottom of page 2. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The verse starts out with what word? I'm under obligation to Jews, to Greeks, to wise, unwise, to Greeks and barbarians. Yeah, I'm under obligation. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of this gospel. To refuse to share the gospel when you feel you should is to be ashamed of it, to turn your face. 
And that's what the Greek word to be ashamed means, to turn the face. And it goes back to a little mythology story about a girl who was, quote, cursed by uh, one of the goddesses. And she made her so that she would look in the mirror and she'd see her face as ugly and contorted. It wasn't. She was still a beautiful girl, but that's what she saw. And um, so the, the Greek word for being ashamed comes with that little kind of story behind it. She would see herself as ugly and contorted and not acceptable, and so she would turn her face and hide under a cloak and live in the shadows. And so that's the Greek word for ashamed. The idea of that comes down to the same principle, to not see in the gospel anything hopeful. To be in a situation and say, what, you know, what good would it do for me to speak the gospel here? I, I can't see it having any fruit. I can't see this doing any good. I mean, if I share what I believe, I'm going to get ridiculed. And uh, they may even ask me to leave. Um, so it's better that I just don't say anything. You know what that is? It's turning your face. Because you see no hope. You have no idea what sharing the gospel can do. Yeah, you may be thrown out. You may be asked to leave. You may find somebody offended at what you do and even violently responding to what you're doing. Believers have been persecuted, beaten, assaulted, thrown out, forced out of families. That's been happening for <laughs> ever. <laughs> But you know what? To not do it because that might happen is to be ashamed. To see that there, what if it does? You don't know what it might do. Maybe the person that's assaulting you and violently responding or rejecting, they may be doing something, but somebody else standing off to the side that's seeing this is suddenly having their heart opened to receive the gospel because they saw how you were mistreated. I have no idea. Paul says, I'm not going to turn my face. The Moffat translation, any of you ever read the Moffat translation? It's, it's a good translation, and it's, you know... He's got his own sometimes unique way of, of saying things. Uh, he turns this around into a positive statement. Uh, instead of saying, I'm not ashamed, he says, I am proud of the gospel. Well, I kind of like that, but it really doesn't carry the same real weight because the idea of ashamed is to, that I don't see any, any good. I don't see what's going to happen if I do this. What good is it going to do? And so to not do that is to turn your face Page three. The Jews regarded Paul as an apostate. By the wise among the Gentiles, he was, he was persecuted and despised. To the self-centered people in the church of Corinth, Paul was regarded as, get these words, they're found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. He was treated as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things. The offscouring, look at that word offscouring. The um, offscouring had to do with, you know, when you take a bath, there's a ring that's written. That's the Greek word offscouring. All right? Uh, it can also be ref uh, referred to as the, the foam that washes up on the beach. You know what's in that foam? Yeah, stuff you don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah, all this junk from the ocean and it washes up and it says, oh, look at the pretty foam. And it's like, no, it's not pretty foam. It's off-scouring. And to the, to the Corinthians, Paul says, you treat me like I'm the filth of the world and the bathtub ring. <laughs> but you know what? I'm in as a father to you. And I'm not giving up. Paul didn't give up on the Corinthians because he was not ashamed of the gospel that he presented to them, that it would have an effect. 
Now, what does he say for this? I'm not ashamed. Why? Because this gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Notice it doesn't say the gospel has the power of God to save. The gospel is the power of God. Gospel, power. Power, gospel. Gospel, good words. The message. The message that's been transmitted since the Old Testament. That God was going to send a Savior, a Redeemer. Someone to be your substitute. God was going to send Him. And then He announced Him. He's here. The Gospel has come. And the Gospel was Jesus. Mark says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, the gospel is that message of promise, fulfillment, and then result. That gospel transformed people's lives. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And so, Paul brings that out here. It is it, the gospel itself, is the power of God. Gospel is not just words. It's not black words on a white page. It's not words chiseled in stone or, or drawn in clay so that the clay hardens or put on wax. The gospel is power. And somebody could chisel some words in stone thousands of years ago. You go read them today. You see what it says. You believe it in your heart and you're changed. Because there's power in the gospel. And the power is there. For it, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation, that leads to salvation, that results in salvation. There's all kinds of different ways that that implication, it is the power of God unto salvation. The word salvation, the Greek word sozo, which means the fullness of of everything that you need wholeness not holiness wholeness which is actually the definition for the Hebrew word shalom wholeness we say peace but it means restoration restitution prosperity everything brought back everything made right shalom which when they transferred Hebrew into Greek, the most common word they used to translate the Hebrew word shalom was the Greek word sozo, soteria, wholeness. It brings healing, deliverance, restoration, forgiveness of sin, recreation within your heart, salvation. It's, it's a big word. And the gospel, six words, six letters, the gospel is the dunamis of God. Power filled with potentiality. All you have to do is what? Believe it. You got to believe it. The gospel won't produce if you won't believe. Right? So it does demand believing. Listen to these passages. Colossians chapter 1. This is the Phillips translation, New Testament in modern English. Colossians chapter 1 verse 5. We know that you are showing these qualities because you have grasped the hope reserved for you in heaven. That hope which first became yours when the truth was brought to you, it is, of course, part of the gospel itself. This hope is a result of the gospel, which has reached you as it spreads all over the world. And I love this next phrase. Wherever that gospel goes, it produces Christian character and develops it. Wherever that gospel goes it produces now that's 
the Phillips translation, but any other translation says the same thing, only not maybe as bluntly or as clearly as he says it here. It produces Christian character, develops as it has done in your own case from the time you first heard and realized the amazing fact of God's grace. All they did is they believed and the gospel produced. Now we could say the word of God, yeah, but you better make sure that your gospel has the word in it and that the word you're speaking is the gospel. So, this is the power of the gospel. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. Now when he uses the, the idea of word there, don't think he's talking about quoting the Bible. He's not. It's in word being intellect or uh, verbal communication. So it wasn't just through verbal communication. The gospel is more than just verbal communication. It's also what? It's not just verbal communication. It is because the gospel doesn't get handed down if you don't talk. You got to talk. It's not going to somehow issue out of you. You know, you hug somebody, the gospel doesn't get transmitted to them. You know, like cooties used to when we were kids. You know, it's, it's not going to spread to other people if you don't talk. So he says it's not only verbal communication, but it also comes in power. Because when you speak the gospel, things change. Maybe not right now, but something changes on the inside. And some seed gets planted. Did you ever do one of those things maybe when you were a kid? But you plant a seed against a piece of glass. You know, put the soil over top. You poke the seed down so that you can see the seed. And, and then you watch it. And out of that bean comes little sprouts. And they start growing and they inch their way up through the soil until they break through the soil. That's like the gospel. I mean, that's a great visual lesson. The gospel has power. That seed, and it might be planted deep in someone's heart, and it might take years for it to produce, but it will finally break ground. And when it does, there's roots down below that are gathering. And those roots are bringing forth nutrition into the person's spiritual life. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one behind the power. The Holy Spirit's the one behind the verbal communication. The Holy Spirit's there. So, well, I don't, I don't see no Holy Spirit. You know, he's there. The Holy Spirit is there. Always oh, working. And with what else? Full conviction. Now, the full conviction is the Greek word has to do with with absolute boldness, the Greek word for conviction is our word boldness, which comes from the Greek word reos, or rhema, to speak, and um, has to do with freely speaking, being able to speak clearly and freely. Did you ever, you know, maybe you were timid about sharing the gospel with someone or speaking and and then you start talking and all of a sudden words from out of nowhere start coming. How many have ever had that kind of experience? Just, they just start coming. They're just, and after you get done, you say, I didn't even know I knew that. You know, I, I don't know Peter sat down after the day of Pentecost and he got back there and said, how did you know that verse? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where that Joel thing came from. Because I don't have I don't have a scroll I don't have a commentary I don't have a device you know I could look up you know what's a good Holy Spirit verse you know to use from the Old Testament he didn't have anything like that he just got up there and all of a sudden this this passage from Joel starts coming out of him and the others are like whoa Paul we never thought you could say anything <laughs> clearly but it was free flowing words so think of boldness not as arrogance not as I'm, I'm, I'm ready to confront you. I'm going to 
speak boldly. No, it's freely. Communicate freely. And so the idea of boldness, and it came, and so I, just, I just got up and I was talking the gospel, and it just came out of me. Look at verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so there has to be a speaking and a hearing, and you received the word of God, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I use this verse teaching in China when I would teach the pastors in China how to use their Bible and why it's important that they be able to, uh, to take people to the Scriptures and show them what the Scripture says. That I don't want people to believe what I'm saying because I said it. I want people to know that it's the Word of God. And when you heard it, he says, you, you received it not, not as the words of men, not as just somebody's philosophy or some new information. No, you received it as what it really is, the Word of God. And that Word of God is doing what? It's at work in you. The Greek word at work comes from our word energize. It's, it's energy on the inside of you. It's coming out. In all of this, and I'll end with this part, in all of this, Paul's Statement leaves no room for another way of salvation. This is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's not a power of God unto salvation. It's the way, not a way. I want you to look at this little verse. This is the story of Paul when he's in uh, Philippi and the little demon-possessed girl who was coming along and she was using her her abilities as a, um, what do they call her, uh, a medium type thing? What did, what did they call her? She was a divination, right, diviner. And, uh, and here's what, what it says. She was following them and she was saying, these are men of the Most High God who come to show you a way of salvation. And she did it for numbers of days. And something, something had to be clicking in Paul until finally he realized what it was that she was saying and what was wrong with it. Here's what it says. And if you look in most of your Bibles, it, they will say, who comes to show you the way of salvation. But your translation is wrong. Because it's not the way of salvation. It's a way of salvation. That's what she clearly says. He come to show you a way of salvation. And they, here's, this is something new. Now, I've got some stuff too. But, you know, there's just another way of salvation. And, uh, you know, I want you to hear them. That's good. But it's a way of salvation. No, Jesus Christ is not a way of salvation. The gospel is not a way of salvation. It is the way. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth. And alive. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What we got today is people saying, well, that's not my truth. It might be your truth, but it's no, there is only one truth. It's the truth. Sorry, I'm not angry at any of you. But we are facing a day when the Bible is being changed. And this last week I heard a a story, an accounting of something that makes me so angry I can I can hardly contain myself. It's in England right now, but I promise you it won't be long before it's here. And people will be picking it up. A bishop of a church in England at Cambridge University was preaching and he was using an illustration of Jesus, a drawing of Jesus from back in the 1300s, and Jesus with the spear wound in his side. And please, I'm not trying to offend, I'm just telling you what this man said. He said, if you notice, and he 
made an enlargement of the picture. He says, you'll notice that that wound looks like a vagina. And he said that Jesus was transgender. He was neither male nor female, but transgender. And in this, and in this proper English church in England, Cambridge University, people were getting up, shouting heresy, walking out the back door, people screaming against this man that Jesus was transgender. Now, I'm telling you, within the year, that will be an issue in churches here in America. All it takes is one person to say those things, and the evil begins to pick it up. Now, please, I was not trying to offend anybody, and if you're offended, I'm sorry. But people want to change the gospel. You can't change it. Paul doesn't leave any room to change. The gospel is the way. It is the power of God resulting in salvation. No gospel, no salvation. No gospel, no power, no salvation. That's the message. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you have given us insight.